Last week in Revelation 14, the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 5, we saw the state, the condition of the redeemed on Mount Zion with the Lamb in the midst of the church's warfare against the beast. That was the the scene last week. And here, this morning, in verses 6 through 13 of Revelation chapter 14, there are a series of warnings, and there's a word of encouragement to the church as the end draws nigh. And so we'll look at the text under the four headings that are there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The first angel, the second angel, the third angel, and then a word of encouragement. So Revelation 14, beginning at verse 6, the first angel appears, and the text says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and this angel has an eternal gospel to proclaim. So the gospel is everlasting or eternal, because first because it originates, its origin is with the eternal God. The gospel comes forth from the eternal counsel of God. And that everlasting root means that the gospel stands forever. The gospel is permanently valid. It's from everlasting to everlasting. It pours this gracious and beneficent light over the whole benighted sphere of human existence. There is good news rooted in the being of God everlastingly proclaimed to the ends of the earth. It's an everlasting gospel. And it's proclaimed, this good news is proclaimed to those who dwell on the earth. Here, what is in view is the unbelieving world. We get this by now familiar, I hope, in Revelation, this fourfold designation. Every nation, every tribe, every language or tongue, and every people refers here to the whole realm of unbelieving people. And they're being given an offer of this gospel, an opportunity to repent. In many ways, this is a last call to repentance. God is patient with the human race. He desires none to perish. He publishes and proclaims His glory day and night in the creation and his redemptive mercy and his goodness in the gospel through the church to the ends of the world. And that gospel goes out here. Angels are messengers. And in verse 7, the angel or the messenger cries out with a loud voice. In a sense, God shouts this gospel. He lifts up his voice So that the earth can hear the proclamation. And this is is probably a symbolic way of speaking of the witness of the church. The witness of the redeemed, since angel just means messenger. God redeems a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every language to go out into every tribe and tongue and nation and language and proclaim this gospel. And so the gospel gets proclaimed to those who dwell on earth. And the appeal, what the angel actually says, you can see it in the middle of verse 7. It's a little surprising 
in that it doesn't contain the stuff that we think of when we think of the gospel. Rather, it focuses on what we might say is the appropriate response to the gospel. The text says, here's the angel's everlasting proclamation. Fear God and give him glory. These are terms which in the book of Revelation refer to freely offered worship. They're roughly equivalent to be converted, turn, repent, fear God and give him glory. And it's an urgent cry. There's a certain finality about this because the reason for the cry for the gospel going out this way is given in the next phrase. Fear God, give him glory because. Because the hour of his judgment has come. I think we learned something very important here. The gospel always comes, even if it's not stated, it always comes against a backdrop of judgment. It comes against the backdrop of the final judgment. The gospel makes no sense whatsoever if it's torn from this context. What would it amount to if the hour of God's judgment had not come and was not at hand and was not to be confronted by every person? What then would the gospel be? Please be nice in the meantime? What could it possibly mean? The gospel is a judicial proclamation. The everlasting gospel is a message of everlasting salvation from everlasting judgment. There's, there is no way for us to avoid this. And I think particularly us modern people, among whom I count myself, um, there's a certain recoil about this. We, we shrink from this. We like to highlight other aspects. But the gospel assumes that human beings are in a state where they are threatened, where there is peril that there is a human predicament that is dire. And to announce that is not to be mean or scary. It is to proclaim the good news. The good news always assumes bad news. Otherwise, its goodness cannot be seen. And this is why, historically, churches that want the good news without the bad news end up with neither. They end up with, try to be nice. So, in the text, the assumption is that the events of the end, the hour of judgment, are already in motion. And so the world is called by the angel to worship him who made, the text says, who made heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. To worship the universal creator, in other words. These are the same four realms that the trumpet judgments were poured out on earlier in the book. And later, the bowls of wrath will be poured out on the same four realms. These are the everlasting creator's domain. And this teaches us, I think, something else that's critical about this gospel, this good news. 
And that is this. Our redemption, the redemption that God has wrought in Jesus Christ, is bound up with worshiping God as the creator. The creator. To believe the gospel then. right? When we believe the gospel, it's the gospel of the God who in Christ, the Christ who is the eternal word of God through whom all things were made. Right? To believe that gospel is to be restored to the right worship of the creator. It's to be healed, to be reordered. The gospel then is a new creation. John evokes God as the creator here when he proclaims the gospel at the very end. The hour of God's judgment is at hand. Therefore, fear God and glorify him who is the creator of the heaven and the earth and the seas. John's thinking is this. This gospel announces a new creation. And so John is evoking Genesis chapter 1. The gospel is, as we say in here often, cosmic. It is about God setting the world right, fixing things. And in this context, this gospel means a renunciation of the worship of the creature. We don't worship creatures in any form. And in the, in the context of the churches in Asia Minor, this means, and, and the church throughout history, this means renouncing the false sovereignty, the idolatrous claims of the beast, which pretends to be God. I read this week a, a, a quote from the, the novelist uh, David Foster Wallace, who in the quote, whether he knew it or not, was drawing on Augustine. He said, everybody worships. I think this is from a commencement address he gave in 2005. He said, everybody worships. The only choice is what we will worship. So we're, we're worshiping creatures. And if we don't, the gospel of this in, uh, incarnate Christ, who is the incarnate creator, entails for us dethroning the claims of the, any aspect of the created order to worship. Because we now are called to worship the creator of heaven and earth. This means we cannot worship politics or the nation state or some economic system. This means we cannot worship the family. And so the gospel says you're a worshiping creature, but your desires have been skewed. They have to be turned and reordered to the creator himself. And so that's the everlasting gospel The second angel appears in verse 8. And his his message tells us that at this late hour, the gospel is going unheeded. He says this, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. Now, I've mentioned it a lot, but this is the first mention, believe it or not, the first mention of Babylon in the book. This is the first time the word is used in the book of Revelation. And so what's going on here is John is announcing through the angel, the angel's announcing Babylon's fate in advance. And this fate will be more fully unfolded in chapter 17 and especially chapter 18. But there's just a little preview of it here. And so Babylon, as we've said, and we'll see this much clearer later, Babylon is Rome. She's the capital 
of the corrupt empire. And by implication, Babylon is any oppressive or seductive cultural system which seeks to seduce the church or silence the church in history. And she is said here to already be fallen, past tense, twice for emphasis. Because she's rejected the everlasting gospel. And if you reject the everlasting gospel, your doom is certain. The text says she's judged because she made all nations, all nations drink the wine of her passion or her adult and her adulteries. So I want to say a couple things about this. Uh, first, notice this. Babylon works by seductive coercion. It's a combination of seduction and coercion. She made, she made the nations drink. She forces compliance to assure one's material well-being. We saw this. This was the essential truth of receiving the mark of the beast. We saw this back in chapter 13. Without it, you cannot buy or you cannot sell. The mark of the beast, remember, is an economic mark. Babylonian Rome controls access to the market. And she sanctions those who don't comply with her idolatry. Again, if you don't see this happening today, you are not paying attention. Second, the drinking of this wine, this is corrupt statist wine. It induces spiritual drunkenness. It's mind-numbing. And the background for what John says here, what the angel says, comes from Jeremiah. Actually, Jeremiah 51, which was the Old Testament lesson this morning. And Jeremiah is speaking of ancient Babylon. And he says this. He says, Babylon was a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, making all the earth drunk. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore, the nations went mad. Again, I remind you, this is a, a good place to see one of the things John does repeatedly. And that is he keeps drawing on these prophets. And, and part of the reason we have such a hard time with the book is we're not familiar with these particular prophetic books. So John makes an allusion to Babylon in Revelation 14, but he's drawing on Jeremiah 51. And he, and he draws repeatedly from Isaiah. He draws repeatedly from Ezekiel. He draws from Zephaniah and Zechariah and Leviticus. These are the books that we need to know to understand this book, which is the culmination of Christian prophecy. And John is doing this in every other verse. In any event, the wine numbs the nations. The effect of the wine is it numbs them. It removes their desire to resist. And it leaves them in a sort of confused stupor. And the wine here is called the passion of her sexual immorality. It's a kind of rage against the Lord with those who fornicate with this beast. And we've said this before. When John uses this language, actual sexual immorality is probably included, but it's not the main point. The main point he's after is idolatrous compromise with the empire. With the beast and the propaganda arm of the beast. 
You drink this wine, you end up like the kings of the earth in Psalm 2, raging against the Lord and His Christ. And so, at this point in the text, we know at least this, that the warning of the angel has gone largely unheeded. And all the nations have been seduced by this Babylonian wine. It's what everybody does. It's unquestioned. Everybody is in some kind of idolatrous communion with the Roman state. And that brings us to this third angel. He appears in verse 9, again with a loud voice. Now he addresses everyone, believers and unbelievers. And this is a warning. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand... We covered all this back in chapter 13. But let let me just briefly recap, because I do know it's difficult to keep the players straight. Uh, The beast from the sea, the first beast, is the empire. That's the beast that's being referred to right here. But there was a second beast from the land, and we said that that second beast was the imperial priesthood. Scattered. The empire centered in Rome, but the empire has tentacles everywhere. The imperial priesthood and the local provincial councils spread throughout the empire. This second beast is the propaganda arm of the first beast. If you get that, you can follow a lot of what John is doing. The second beast we saw sets up images of the first beast, images of the emperors, and demands worship. And so if you submit... To the propaganda of the second beast and you worship the image of the first beast, you're marked. You're enabled to participate in the economic life of the empire fully. You might remember I read this letter from 110 AD from Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan saying, I'm having Christians imprisoned and executed who will not burn a little incense to the image of the emperor. This is in Asia Minor in 110 AD. If they don't play... They are not going to buy and sell. And so here then, again, all men are warning. The text says, if they do this, they will drink the wine of God's wrath or God's fury. If you want want the Babylonian wine, then you're going to get the really strong stuff. That's what God is saying. The wine of God's wrath. This is another example of the eye-for-eye nature of the judgment. The punishment fits the crime. God's wine, the text says, notice this, it says it's poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. In the first century, wine was often cut or diluted with water. This wine is unmixed. It's poured neat, served at full strength in the cup of God's judgment so that its effects never wear off. They're permanently effective. The text says they will be tormented with fire and sulfur or brimstone. These are metaphors for the reality, the intensity of the torment. And this is a difficult thing to stomach. But shockingly, shockingly, the torment here, torment, occurs in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. You see that in the text? 
Where is this torment occurring? In the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. In the presence of God's heavenly court, which issues the judgment. And somehow this angelic host, God's glorious cloud, his attendants, his throne room attendants, and the Lamb partake in this judgment. And the, and the point of this metaphor here is that this is inescapable. Men, women, and children are going to come face to face with this lamb. Right? The point of the text is not, first and foremost, to, for us to speculate about the nature of the torment. It is that the judgment is inescapable. The angels in whose presence this occurs are called holy angels. And there's nothing unholy or unbecoming of God in this. We tend to think this sounds excessive or this sounds harsh. But we miss the fact that the torment is administered in the presence of the Lamb himself. Notice that in the text. This is what chapter 6 in the book called the wrath of the Lamb. One of the great paradoxical statements in all of Scripture, the wrath of the Lamb. And I don't claim to be able to fathom the mystery here or to be able to satisfy everyone's conscience or everyone's questions or everyone's human sensibilities about the justness of this. But I, but I am assured by this and I seek to assure you this way. I think this is the thing that we have to say when it comes to the question of torment and hell and eternal punishment. We have to say this, that it's precisely the Lord Christ's presence there as lamb, as the slain one, as the broken one, as the one who bore judgment and violence. Now standing, it is his presence in the midst of the scene that guarantees us that there is not a shred or a whiff of injustice here. It guarantees us of the utter goodness and the glory and the justice of the scene. This is what we must say. We must affirm the text because the lamb is in the middle of the text. He does not avert his eyes, and if he doesn't avert his eyes, we shouldn't avert our eyes. Another way of putting this the Lamb's presence here, is to say it this way. One will either drink the cup, the cup that Jesus calls us to drink, the cup of his suffering, the cup which he first drank on our behalf, or one will drink this terrible cup of God's wrath. There's a whole theology of cups here in this text. And verse 11 tells us that the smoke of the torment goes up forever. It's a permanently enduring memorial to the judgment. It's a kind of ghastly counterpart to the the rising smoke of the prayers of the saints, which ascends to heaven. And finally, these worshipers of the beast have no rest, day or night. This is also a counterpart Right back in in chapter 4, the heavenly host. And in chapter 7, the redeemed. Neither one of them ever cease worshiping God day and night before the throne of the living God. 
And so here, this restless torment continues forever, day and night, as a counter, kind of counterpoint to the everlasting worship of God. It's a scene, which I think we should acknowledge, is offensive to modern sensibilities, if I haven't said it outright. And it's a passage which will test whether our loyalties and our sensibilities are ultimately governed by what we think is reasonable or whether they're governed by Holy Scripture. It is often the case that we might think something's excessive or harsh, but the law and the prophets and Jesus think it's perfectly good and just and right. Another thing to guard against here is universalizing our own instincts. This is a tendency we all have, right? We say, well, I find that X or I find that Y. Right? To, to which the immediate response could be, so what? Right? There, are, there are things that Westerners and Americans find repulsive that three-quarters of the world doesn't find repulsive. I, I, I saw a lecture that uh, Tim Keller gave at Google recently, and uh, he was talking about various people that he, he encountered, international students and the like, and his point was, Uh, similar to the point I'm trying to make here, he says he encountered a Chinese student who said, no, I have no problem with hell at all. He encountered numerous students from all over the world for whom a text like this poses not the slightest bit of emotional or psychological distress. Just because something distresses you or me does not mean it's necessarily distressing for billions of other people. This student said, well, of course, if God is God and creatures violate God's law, he can punish them in any way he wants. What scandalized this particular student was the whole idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness was scandalous. You know, we need to see the right things as scandalous. We need to question just because our gut tells us something does not mean our gut is right. There are seven billion guts in the world. Right? You've got one of them. And there's five or six billion that don't agree with you. That's an aside. But, but more to the point is, your gut has to be governed by Holy Scripture. The whole point of Holy Scripture is to change some of your deeply held things that are in your bones that are wrong. And if they're not wrong, they're only half right. Or they're misshapen. And so a text like this reminds us of that. This is a text which exposes things, including us. Finally, there's a word of encouragement here. The whole point is actually to encourage you to endure, to brace yourself against compromise. So, in other words, there is a sense, a legitimate sense, even if your sensibilities are right, even if you're formed well, The text does shock. There is a certain horror about it. It's intended to. It's intended to. Again, we think we're beyond that. But many people, I was reading a commentary on the book of Revelation not long ago where the author said that it was the sheer terror of hell as an inescapable reality that made the, the pressure of the Christian gospel something he had to come to terms with because the stakes were so high. He was an atheist at the time. And he said, 
Through that, he became converted, and he's a faithful Christian 25 years later, and he is, in fact, the author of the commentary I was now reading. The stakes are high, and this text reminds us that, so it rebukes our kind of sentimental casualness, the the lightness of things. It rebukes our, our hideous underestimating of the cup that the Lamb drank for you. For your redemption. It's also a rebuke to a kind of false American piety that thinks it's base. That it's unfitting for us to be motivated by the coming judgment. Or even by the coming judgment of the church's persecutors. Scripture is full of this kind of motivation. And so as the text, verse 12 says, for the, that calls for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. One of the things Revelation does, and I know this language can be difficult because it's apocalyptic language and it's stark, but it reminds us that in a world where everything is muddled and things are often gray and it's hard to tell who's who and who's in and who's out, Revelation says, in the end, things are quite stark. There are faithful Christians and there are compromisers with the beast. At the end, there are no nominal Christians. There are no cultural Christians. There are no equivocating Christians. They all vanish. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Worshippers of the beast. Followers who keep the commandments of Jesus. So part of the purpose of the book is for you to have... Um, intellectual and moral clarity now. So, in verse 13, John hears this voice, and the voice commands him to write down a sobering benediction. How's this for a benediction? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. You know what this benediction is realizing, beloved? It is realizing that the endurance of the saints called for here in verse 12 will end in martyrdom in a great many cases. That's why this text is here. He's saying to the church, if you hear me right, you're going to be killed. Let me announce the benediction for your funeral in advance. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from this moment on. It's hard. I saw Flannery O'Connor responding, the great uh, Southern uh, writer from earlier in the 20th century who wrote all of these stories with odd and strange and bizarre and violent characters responding to a criticism of her stories. And O'Connor, who was a devout Catholic, said... The stories are hard, but they're hard because there is nothing harder and there is nothing less sentimental than Christian realism. There is nothing harder and there is nothing less sentimental than Christian realism. How is it, how is it that we've somehow turned this gospel into some sentimental, drippy thing all the time. When in fact, there is nothing less sentimental in the world than Christian realism. So O'Connor wrote her stories with sharp, hard edges. 
Well, that's, that's what this text is. And so the coming wave of faithful witnesses, they're pronounced blessed in advance. Death has been conquered. And grasping this is not something for Easter Sunday. It's a matter of life and death. Right? It's a matter of existential urgency for the early church. Do you know who else this is a matter of existential urgency for? The Christians today in Egypt and in Iraq and in Syria and in a dozen other countries. It has always been the case for a large number of us. Athanasius, the great 4th century church father, has this wonderful passage in his book on the Incarnation where he speaks of this. He says, He speaks of Christians despising death and taking the offensive against it and trampling on it. And he speaks of men and women and children unafraid of dying, going eagerly to meet death as they mocked it as a defeated tyrant. They believe these very words, this benediction, to which the Spirit of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity, adds his Amen. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, And then the Spirit describes the the blessedness that they might rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. The wicked have no rest, but your death, precious in the eyes of the Lord, is the entrance into Sabbath rest. And your labors, your deeds, your keeping the commandments, your fidelity, those things follow you into that blessed rest. And so the text announces good news. And in doing so, it announces this judgment to warn us, to encourage us to endure. So don't forget, the gospel is unintelligible if it is not the gospel against the backdrop of this judgment. And I I charge you, heed these commands to endure. Keep the commandments of God. Hold fast to the faith. Do not grow weary in well-doing. In due time you'll reap. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, Paul says, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Indeed, your labors follow you. They follow you into the blessedness of this everlasting rest where you join the company of the faithful witnesses. Amen. Amen.